Welcome back to the DNV Talks Energy Podcast. This is our 13th series and it makes me very happy to say that after two years of online recording, I'm now back talking to my guests face to face. During this series, we'll be exploring some of the key insights from DNV's Energy Transition Outlook, our annual independent model of the world's energy system and what they mean for the future of our planet. Across the series, with the help of leading industry guests, we'll shed light on what's happening right now and the forecast as we move forwards. We'll explore topics from the geopolitical developments affecting the energy transition to what's needed from technology, finance and policy in delivering net zero. Crucially, we ask, how do we move from ambition to urgent action over climate change? In this episode, we focus on what DNV's energy transition outlook tells us about what is happening right now on climate change and what the short, medium and long-term trends are expected to be in the journey towards net zero. I'm joined today by Ditlef Engel, CEO of DNV's energy systems business, who is uniquely placed to explain what DNV's latest findings mean for how the planet's most pressing issue is tackled. Together, we'll discuss the outlook for vital components of the energy transition, including renewables and hydrogen, and how governments worldwide will maintain a focus on net zero in the face of immediate energy security challenges. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the DNV Talks Energy Podcast, Ditlev. It's always a pleasure having you here. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you briefly introduce yourself and your role in DNV? Thank you very much, uh, Matthias, for, for having me again. My name is Ditlev Engel. I am the CEO of Business Area Energy Systems at DNV. We are 4,300 people working the entire value chain within the energy sector across the world. So Ditlev, across this series, we'll be exploring key findings of DNV's energy transition outlook. For a start, could you explain what the DNV energy transition outlook is and why DNV is publishing it every year? Yes, so six years ago, we discussed that in total at the DNV, we are more than 12,000 people who literally are working in the engine room of the maritime industry, the energy industry, the digital industry. And our clients kept asking us, what do you think the future will look like? So we said, well, actually, from a technology perspective, we do nothing else every single day. So basically, we said, maybe we can turn all that knowledge we have across DNV into an outlook. And so we decided to make what we call the most likely future based upon cost. That means, for instance, if a battery costs 100 today, 50 in five years and 25 in seven years, what will that mean for the uptake of batteries in the energy transition, for instance? So we take and make this model on a global scale. We also then put it into 10 different regions because obviously each region have different starting points. And that gives what we call the most likely future based upon the cost of technologies and the development of the technologies over the years as we forecast them and as we know them when we work with them across DNV every single day. So what are the most significant findings of this year's report? Yes, yeah, so uh, as I said, we have made it now for a number of years. And basically, one of the very important findings that we have every single year, unfortunately, is that even though we're going to see massive things happening on the energy transition, then unfortunately, we won't get to the Paris Agreement. We have over the number of years said we'll probably end up in a scenario around 2.2 degrees centigrade warming. So that is unfortunately being confirmed again and you can say well that's the same message but we keep confirming that that is the most likely development we see from that perspective 
The other things that we keep seeing is that we will see a massive electrification of the world, and that will be driven by, first and foremost, renewables, simply because that will be the cheapest way to electrify the world. So we are seeing many of the trends being reconfirmed, which I personally think is good, because hopefully will also give all our customers even more confidence in making what are very important long-term decisions. So since February this year, we have this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which has caused a global energy crisis. Do you think this has an impact on the long-term trajectory of the energy transition? Well, that's a very good question. I think the invasion in Ukraine has learned us uh, some very important things. The first thing is that all energy decisions are long-term. You cannot just change the energy mix in a short term. It is about long-term thinking when you deal with energy. And we obviously see that now in Europe because we have a massive pressure due to the situation of gas. And that, I think, is actually one of the important messages as well, that a lot of people say in Europe we have an energy crisis, but that's not really true. We have a fossil fuel or a gas uh, crisis at the moment because we cannot get the gas we used to get in Europe. And that, of course, also have taught us that dependency is something we have to take very seriously when we think about energy planning ahead. But if you then look a little beyond the coming winter in Europe, where obviously right now it's a challenge to make sure we have enough just to get through the winter. But when we look a little further than that, then the outlook actually has not changed. And the reason for that is, again, the economics, that the best way to scale up, electrify Europe would be to build out renewables massively. And that hasn't changed because of the conflict. I would rather say has maybe re-emphasized that it is about electrification, it is about decarbonization, and is now to do it even faster than we maybe had planned in the past. So it doesn't change the way or where we want to go, but it has now, I think, the tragedy in Ukraine have shown us how important it is that we get this done as soon as possible. So do you see a different balance or different speed regions are going about this transition now? Europe has a big interest of being independent. Other countries still have to fight high inflation, mounting government debt. Does that have an impact on how it develops at different parts in the world? Well, you know, if we still stay in Europe, number one, what we are seeing now is that the commitment from governments in Europe to build out, for instance, of offshore wind has never been higher. I think at this moment, we are about 165 gigawatts of offshore wind that has been committed to be built out in the coming years. We saw in the month of May that uh, Germany, Denmark, Belgium and the Netherlands got together and signed up 65 gigawatts by 2030 in the North Sea. So there are some very strong commitments. And therefore, it's important to remember that the challenge that we actually have is not technology related. It's permitting and planning related, meaning that the technology can actually be scaled very fast. But it is all the rules and regulation that we have put around them, which is delaying and while it takes much longer to build out. But it has nothing to do with the technology. And that's, of course, also important to remember that. So from a cost perspective and from a timing perspective, we could do it significantly faster than we are doing at the moment. But we have the rules and regulations right now that are difficult to deal with. So it's actually a policy matter that we have to get solved as fast as we possibly can. And then just getting back to the economics, because we hear that very often. But what about the economics? Well, actually, in the outlook that we make, it is actually confirmed that the cheapest way of doing this would be, for instance, to scale renewable massively. Of course, you would need to invest a lot of money up front. So if you look at it from a, if you were the finance minister of the world, 
and you would sit and look at what does the world in total spend on energy. Today, we spend about 3.4% of global GDP on our energy cost today with the current system. If we then went into a, let's say, a fully decarbonized system where we would get 80% of our energy from non-fossil and 20 from fossil in 2050, we would spend 2.4% of global GDP, which is actually a 50% reduction. So if I was the, the minister of finance in the world, I would say, hey, we're spending 3.4 today. If we make this investment going forward, we only spend 2.4. We cannot afford not to do this. But of course, it is a massive transformation that needs to happen. And therefore, of course, it's just important again to remember that when we make these decisions, what is the long-term outlook of the cost? And here, renewables are actually very predictable in cost. And therefore, I think it's very important to remember that even we have to invest a lot up front, we're going to get it back later because we will then actually spend less than we do today. So to put this importance of renewables into perspective, what is the DNV's energy transition outlooks finding about the outlook for renewables and the share in the energy mix by 2050? So we are, we are actually showing two reports. We are showing in the ETO, which is our most likely future, and there we would see wind go up 10 times, solar 20 times. But as I said, unfortunately, we are not going then to get to Paris, even that is the most likely future driven by cost. We have therefore also decided to turn it around and say, well, that's not good enough. If we need to get to 1.5 degrees centigrade as in the Paris Agreement, what we would then need to do. So then we made a report which we have called the pathway to net zero. And in the pathway to net zero, that actually would mean that wind has to go up 20 times and solar 30 times. But here, I think it's really important to look at the trends. So whatever scenario you're looking at, we are looking into a massive build out of both wind and solar, at least from a technology cost point of view. Now we, in brackets, just needs to make sure that the rules and regulation can handle that, but the technology can handle it. And what about adjacent technologies to build up so much renewables will also need a strengthening of the grid. What needs to happen there to make this buildup of renewables possible? Yeah, you know, it would be a bit like buying a lot of cars and then not build the highways. And everybody say, well, that's stupid. Now you have all these cars. Why did you not look out for that? But because the grid is normally underground, so we don't see it. But that is exactly what we need. So we need the, let's say, the electricity highways build out. So there needs to be a massive build out of the grid infrastructure in order to handle all this electricity that we will see going forward. And again, here it's important to remember that the numbers that I mentioned before about what it will cost, that the more grid build out we do, the more we do that. Every time we do that, we actually in the long term keep reducing what we pay per installed, let's say, meter or kilometer of cable because we keep getting more bang for the buck. So the faster that we scale it, the faster we do it, the cheaper it also become, which is like, I think any products that anybody knows that is when it's being mass produced, we'll keep seeing a reduction per unit you produce. So the faster we will do this and the more we will do of it, the cheaper it also will become. So the electrification of the energy system and the large share of renewables, which we just discussed, is one important column of the energy transition. But then we also have the hard to abate sectors, which are banking on the replacement of fuel towards hydrogen, for example. How do you see this development there? Are we moving fast enough and what else needs to happen in that sector? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, Matthias. So basically what we're looking at when we say the electrification of the world is that whatever you can directly electrify, so that will be our cars, uh, our homes, we should do. 
But then there are certain things where this won't work sort of from a technology perspective. And one of them, for instance, would be maritime. Another one would be the aviation industry. And the third one would be heavy duty industry, i.e., for instance, production of steel, etc. And there you can't do it with renewables. So when it has to be fossil free, what do you then do? And this is where hydrogen will play a very important role because that will be the other way of doing it in, let's say, without emissions. And their hydrogen will be very important. We don't see hydrogen, for instance, being used going forward in cars and others. We think that will be uh, through batteries and so on. But for the hard to abate sector, hydrogen will be very important. So we will see a massive scaling of hydrogen, but only in the 2050, we will be about 5% of the total energy will be hydrogen. Hydrogen is talked a lot about this moment, and there's a lot of interesting perspectives on hydrogen, but it's also an item that is difficult to handle from safety and also from a cost perspective. So for the remaining delta, what about the importance of technologies like carbon capture and storage? Will that play an important role in the transition as well? Yeah, so if I can go back to sort of the idea, if you were the global minister of building the energy mix, you would sit and look at the 10 different regions and then you would say, hmm, the starting points are very different around the world. So what are they capable of doing economically and from technology perspective? So if we are going to deliver on the pathway to net zero report that I mentioned before, that actually means that some countries like, for instance, in North America and Europe, is not enough to get to zero, they have to go to minus. And that, of course, you can only do if you use the technologies you just mentioned, because other parts of the world simply won't be able to do that because where they are right now, technology-wise, etc. So we will need to think about this, that we have to use all the tools that we have at our disposal, and we will need to use them in a different way in different places in order to make sure we get there. So we have not to think about what does CCS cost against solar. We need to think about what should the role of CCS be going forward of how to support this so we use all the tools in the toolbox. And through that, we will then get the most, let's say, optimal economical position from a global perspective. So two aspects. No country can achieve the energy transition alone. It needs to be all of them. The second thing we see at the moment is large projects. When we talk for about green hydrogen projects, for example, we have a renewables part, we have a pipeline transmission part, we have an electrolyzer part, and we have other use cases. How important is cross-industrial and cross-country, cross-regional collaboration in the energy transition? So as I mentioned in the beginning, the business area from DNV that I represent is called energy systems. And there's a good reason for that. And the reason for that is obviously that the future is very much about thinking systems and integration of systems. So we have to think about collaboration, both from an energy systems perspective, but also across industry perspective. And I think this is very important to remember that there are so many industries now that are obviously using energy and the way that they think about using energy going forward. And we need to work with all of them and we need together to find the right optimal solutions. One example would, for instance, be what will be, since we're in Singapore here today, what will be the future role of ports? If you're not going to use them anymore for shipping out of coal, what can, role can they play if you have to bring a massive amount of electricity from offshore wind parks in and store it and distribute it into societies? So just for instance, the ports are going to play a new role. The vessels are going to play a new role if they're going to either be electrified or be running on green fuels, etc., etc. So we need to think about everything in the infrastructure in a different way 
and how they need to adjust in order to, because we are changing to using a complete new type of fuels going forward and the way we're going to work with that. So it is not just an energy transition in brackets. It is a, I would call it nearly an industrial revolution because we need to change so many things across industries. So it involves everybody who is actually consuming energy. Did the great commitments were made at COP26, but unfortunately the emissions didn't decrease, they increased. Now going forward, what would be the most important parameters to measure to know that we are on a trajectory of success? Yeah, as you said, we have now been discussing the same thing for more than 25 years, and we know we have so many things we have to do in the years to come. So I think what is very important now is that the good old saying, what you measure, you improve. So the first and the most important question is, what do we measure? And what we really need to measure is how to reduce the emissions with 8% every single year going forward. Now, to put that into perspective, during COVID, we actually reduced the emissions with 6% when we were not flying, when we were all sitting at home, but we can only do that once. So that gave us 6%. And every year we have to cut it by 8%. So we have to think about not just that we will build out a lot of renewables in the coming years. We have to show a commitment. What will country A, what will country B, country C do every single year to lower the emissions with 8%. Otherwise, we're not going to get to Paris. So, you know, it's about how do we then report on that and how do we measure that? So I would like to see that all the COPs going forward, there would be an evaluation of how much has the emissions been lowered per each country. And what are the plans for lowering them the next year, not in the next 20 or 30 years? Otherwise, you know, it would be a bit like I will tell you today, okay, you know what? I have planned to lose about 10 kilograms in 10 years, and we'll talk about that. You're probably more impressed if I tell you that, you know, I'm going to lose 500 grams the next month and then 500 grams the month after that. And that's the kind of mindset we need to have instead of saying, yeah, I will probably a long time away, I'll do something. That is not working for us. So we have to be much more concrete. We have to be much more transparent and we have to be much more direct. And we have to measure it and discuss it every single year, but also inspire each other because we need to learn from each other. How would you, for instance, manage to get your 8% emission down every single year? What are you doing to do that? And so I think we need to measure the actual reduction emission more than discussing and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to build 25 gigawatts in, in 20 years from now. So we need to be much more transparent, much more concrete and measure it much more rigorously than we've ever done before. And we need to measure the reduction emission. And the key number here is 8% every single year. Otherwise, we won't get to the agreement in Paris. And that maybe brings me to my last question. I'm interested in your personal view. How optimistic are you that we as a society can actually reach these so important targets to abate climate change? I've been working in the sector for many years. And what I just have to say is that when it comes to technology, I am extremely optimistic. And we don't even yet have contemplated all the things technologies can do for us. But it can only happen if we let technology do its work. And that's the problem. So I would say I'm very technology optimistic. I am somewhat more regulatory pessimistic. But the good message really is we have the tools that we need. It's all about start using them in the right way. And that, I think, is where we all need to focus. And the good news at the end of the whole thing is that from an economic perspective, it will also be the right thing to do. So now we just have to connect the dot. So on that note, I would have to say we all have just to enlighten people. And that's exactly what we'd like to achieve 
when we are launching both the ETO and the pathway to net zero is to demonstrate and give people the confidence that this is the right thing to do and that they should trust even more in the technologies because that is the way that we have to solve this problem. Thank you very much, Dieter, for sharing all these great insights with us this morning. It was a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much, Matthias. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. Ditlev provided us with the very latest forecast over the expected pace for the energy transition and explained the factors that will determine whether or not targets are met. He told us that while COP26 provided a consensus over climate ambitions, world leaders still need to do far more as we move beyond COP27. In particular, he called for a focus on annual carbon emission targets as longer-term goals are an inefficient motivator for urgent action. Across this series, we'll expand further on some of the major talking points Ditlev raised today. Join us next week as we discuss the global energy security crisis in more depth and ask whether a focus can be maintained over net zero while governments face acute challenges. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnv.com/talksenergy.